Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Gideon. Good morning. Must have scared some people off with the sermon on money last week. Just kidding. Uh, We're continuing in our series in Luke's Gospel. We are in the second half of chapter 16, uh, and we're starting in verse... 14, that's 1040 again in your pew Bible, if you've got that ESV pew Bible. Uh, Yes, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, such weighty issues as we consider eternity. And fathers, we think about uh, this past week and the young ones that have come for VBS. Father, we pray that you would have set eternity in each of their hearts, that they would have 
heard the words of Christ, that they would have seen the beauty of grace that was poured out through his life and death and resurrection for us. That they, Lord, would be counted among those uh, who will be with you by your side in eternal heaven. And Father, we pray the same here for us, that we would be people who hear, receive, repent, turn from our wickedness, and find our eternal destiny with you. And not people who find ourselves as respectable people and find our eternal destiny in torment and anguish. For we pray that you would speak powerfully through your word this morning. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after spending some time looking at lostness and and foundness from God's perspective and and the joy that he has uh, when a person repents, as we looked at in in chapter 15, we we then looked at uh, the issue of stewardship from a, a disciple viewpoint. How do we view money that we must engage with uh, here on earth? Do we see its value from an eternal kingdom perspective or from a worldly perspective? And today we're looking once again at eternal perspectives. But as we said last week, the issue with the unrighteous mammon, it's not a salvation issue. But today's lesson very much is, as we consider justification and as we consider heaven and hell and what is required for those to be saved. Now, at the outset, as we look at our text, it would seem that verses 14 to 18, they feel excuse me, very disconnected, if you didn't pick up on that. Uh, Verse 14 seems to be this uh, sort of carryover verse from the first part of chapter 16. Uh, You know, the the previous parable, uh, the the Pharisees were lovers of money. And then in verse 16, we see uh, about the Old Testament law. And then in verse verse 18, uh, Jesus is talking about uh, marriage and divorce. But we know from, from the beginning of Luke's gospel that he is writing an orderly account And so we know that he's not just taking a bunch of leftover uh, stories and and, and teachings that Jesus has done and just sort of randomly interspersing them uh, throughout the chapters of his gospel. They're not random. But we we know that as this section that we've been looking at, covering from from chapter 13, verse 22, all the way to what we will cover in chapter 17, verse 10. And at the heart of that entire section of verses is the parable of lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And again, teaching us the joy of God when people repent. Chapter 15, verse 7, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Chapter 15, verse 10, joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then, of course, again, we saw the parable of the shrewd but dishonest manager, which was for the disciples, chapter 16, verse 1. But now we look at chapter 16, verse 14, and he's addressing the Pharisees again. They heard these things, they heard the parable of the shrewd manager, and they ridiculed him. They will not do the thing that Jesus urges them to. And teaches these people to do. 
and they will not repent, and they will not turn back to God. Receiving that forgiveness of sins. Why? Well, the text tells us it is because they love money. And as Jesus says in verse 13, you cannot serve God and money. So rather than repent, these Pharisees, they ridicule. And yet, verse 15, they justify themselves before others. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Therefore, God is the judge. He reminded us of that earlier. So what matters, of course, is not the opinion of others, but God's verdict. Yet there are far more concerns with what others think than what God thinks. And Jesus says, to live like that is an abomination. Literally, a detestable thing. Okay, so how do these Pharisees, how do these people who justify themselves before men, how do they justify themselves? Well, it's by lowering the bar of God's law. The law of God stands, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Lowering the bar. The, the, the Pharisees are, are legalists, right? But in order for legalism to work, where you're sort of heaping on additional laws, you also have to fudge the standards, right? Right? Because the standards are impossible. That's the whole point of the standards in in God's Old Testament law, right? It is to show us that we do not measure up. So in order to falsify living by or, or living up to the standards, you have to lower the standards to make them achievable. For instance, when I want to play basketball, which I don't do very often, uh, and I want to be able to uh, score easy points and, and, and dunk the basketball... Uh, I have to lower my rim to a a shorter height than the standard height. Uh, That is so I can achieve my goal. Is it cheating? Well, yes. But I want to dunk the basketball. And I want people to think well of me. I want them to think I'm a great athlete. And I want to think that myself in my heart, which sadly is not true. That's what the Pharisees did with God's law. And in particular, in marriage. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And uh, he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You see, the Pharisees drew up uh, a a list of exceptions to this law of God on, on marriage and divorce. Exceptions like... If your wife burns your dinner, you have grounds for divorce. I am not making this up. This is literally the the law that these Pharisees had come up with. If you found another woman more attractive, you had grounds for divorce. And they were abusing this. Now, verse 18 is not here to give Jesus' complete thoughts on divorce and remarriage, but rather 
This is specific for the Pharisees. He's reminding them how short they fall of God's law. And all along, they dismiss Jesus' call to repent and come into the kingdom of God. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Or if you have a footnote, you'll notice your footnote says, and everyone is forcefully urged into it, which I think seems better as Jesus is urging people into God's kingdom. So then, who is this parable about heaven and hell for? With that sort of covering of verses 14 to 18. Well, it is for anyone who, like the Pharisees, has heard the words of Jesus and is yet to repent. Whether it is because they love money or they idolize their career or whatever it is that stands in the way of Jesus being Lord in every area of their life. Rather than repent and, and put your trust and your confidence in Jesus. They dismiss him. Their confidence is in the fact that they are well-liked by others. And so they lower the bar. Well, I'm not as bad as whoever. I am a respectable person. I do the right thing. Well, how many people do we know that are like this? They are the people that you would like to have in your neighborhood uh, because they are pleasant and they're probably kind. But there's certainly an element of this as a word to us for when we try to go back to the law and alter God's law to feel better about our own sin. But even more so, this is a word to us to see eternity in every single person, for we are all eternal beings. We will all spend eternity in one of two places. It's either in torment and anguish in hell or eternal joy with Christ in heaven. Well, let's look at our parable Uh, Picking up again in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Look at the contrast, that contrast between prosperity and poverty. Now, the rich man in this parable is defined by his wealth. Describes his clothing, the, the way that he feasts, the, the, the ease of life it seems that he has. But Lazarus is defined by his name. He's the only person in all of the parables that Jesus teaches that's given a name. And his name means God is my help. Now at this point it might be worth asking ourselves, which would you rather be? Wealthy with, with all the, the, the lifestyle that comes with that, or known by God, named by God, knows God, and is in relationship with God. 
As drastic as the contrast is in this life, it is almost incomparable with the contrast in the afterlife. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The rich man finds himself in hell not because he was rich, because Abraham himself was rich, but rather because his riches were demonstrating who he was serving, which was himself. This contrast between the two men and what they experience in this life and the next is precisely the reversal that Jesus speaks of throughout this section of Luke. And we remember back from Luke chapter 13 and verse 23, and the question is asked of Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And the rich man, being like those in verse 24 of chapter 13, as Jesus says, to strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. That the parable illustrates precisely what he is teaching in chapter 13, verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and they will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And verse 30 of chapter 13, Lazarus is very much one of the, the least in this world, and he becomes the first. And the, the rich man, very much among the first in this world, becomes among the last. It's the greatest reversal that lies at the heart of this section, this, this chunk of verses that we've looked at over the last few months. Now, some dismiss Jesus' uh, description of heaven and eternity on the grounds that it's simply just a parable. Well, look, there is nothing else in Scripture about the ability in hell of those in hell to be able to communicate with those in heaven. But all the other details in this passage correspond to what Jesus teaches in chapter 13 of Luke. There is life beyond the grave. There is a heaven and a hell. Hell has real people in it. The decisions that we make in this life affect our destiny in the next. And at the point of death, these points are fixed. You can't dismiss the parable as a story that doesn't teach reality. The point of the parable is that after death, the moment of decision is past. It is too late for a deal to be cut. 
Uh, there's, or, or, or the, the concept of, I'm, I'm hoping for the best, that sort of mentality that we often hear from people. If you were to ask them a question about, do you think you'd be in heaven or hell? Or, they say, well, I'm hoping for the best. Or the idea that your, your good works will outweigh your bad. Jesus is giving clarity on this issue. Not in that he takes pleasure in speaking about hell, but because he wants to warn us about going there. And as any parent knows, warnings are an act of kindness. When you tell your child not to run into the street and you warn them, that is an act of kindness. Saying nothing would be quite unloving. Jesus is once again saying, do not head off into eternity unprepared. That would be the unloving thing to do. The whole point of Jesus coming to the earth was to die on the cross so that those who trusted in him can be forgiven our sins and brought into relationship with God before it is too late. And tragically for this man, it is too late. And if you were to have asked him during his life that the very idea that God would send him and his, his successful and his respectable friends to hell would have been a preposterous idea. None of them believed in that sort of thing, and he certainly did not. And now, on the other side, he sees the things which in his life he was so obstinately blind to. And so we see the seriousness of the choices that we make in this life or those that we fail to make. And then we look at the importance of repenting before it is too late. Luke is writing to give us certainty about the gospel to be proclaimed to the nations. A gospel of repentance. Turning back to God for the forgiveness of sins. Trusting in Jesus who died for our sins. None of, it makes hell, none of it makes any sense if hell is not real. And yet, who wants to really go into the streets or into your neighborhoods and talk about hell? But if you are someone who, who knows the joy of forgiveness, if you have been that prodigal, or if you have felt like that lost sheep or that lost coin, and you, you, you know what it feels like when when. That, that warm welcome that, that God gives you uh, as a repentant sinner, then love demands that we speak about the realities of heaven and hell. Verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Repent now. You have all the information you need. No matter your indifference on this side of death, there is no indifference on the other side. The rich man longs for his brothers to be warned, but Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
So the man asks again, this time more urgently, more insistently. Verse 30, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What is he saying? What is the rich man saying? He's saying the Bible. You cannot expect people to listen to the Bible. But if someone goes to them in person and explains that heaven and hell really do exist and that respectable people like us end up here, then surely that will make a difference. Verse 30 is also an acknowledgement by the rich man of what he should have done in this life. What should he have done? Like the prodigal, he should have repented. And his brothers are now making the exact same mistake. And so Abraham replies in verse 31, They have all that they need. Now, we could misread verse 31 and interpret this as God being uh, mean or unfair. It's not that he gives the minimum evidence necessary to believe him, like uh, some sort of uh, one of the guessing games or something where where you give as few clues as possible for the person to make some sort of guess. That's not how God works. That's not what's being described here. Because the rich man's problem wasn't a lack of evidence, but his unwillingness to accept God. It's just what he admits in verse 30. It it, it follows that, that more evidence won't persuade his brothers. Not even if someone were raised from the dead. I do find it interesting that another man by the exact same name, Lazarus, was raised from the dead. And yet many use that as further reason to arrest Jesus rather than to believe in him and follow his teaching. We had a young man that visited the 20s and 30s group on a Thursday night a few weeks ago. And he voiced his desire to to someone in the group that he wished that God would speak to him. He wanted a revealing of God to himself. It's a request for new information. Give me new information, then I will believe. Well, it just happened that the talk that night was about how God has revealed himself through the Son in his word. How's that for a sign? Jesus is saying, when it comes to the issue of repentance and putting our trust in Him, there will be no new information because we have all the information we need. The fact is, if we do not heed the Bible's warnings, no amount of signs or new information will persuade us. The person who has the Bible and waits for more evidence before committing to Christ is deceiving himself. But of course, we have been given more evidence. We have been given the very thing that the rich man was asking for. Because Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. And there is plenty of evidence of of his resurrection It is well documented for those who who would genuinely and honestly consider it. And yet it hasn't been the game changer that the rich man thought that it would be. 
I know countless millions have, of course, put their trust in Christ as Savior, but countless others continue to reject, reject Him and ignore Him. You think more evidence is what you need? It's not true. The gospel counts are full of people who saw Jesus in the flesh, heard His teaching, and still walked away unrepentant and unbelieving. I occasionally meet with uh, a man who comes here on Wednesday nights, and uh, he's an avowed atheist, and his big deal is always about the evidence. Uh, uh, the archaeological evidence is a big hurdle for him. And I, I think I've told you about this before, and so I gave him a, a book written by a friend of mine uh, in Australia, and I was reading through the introduction of the book just to kind of familiarize myself with what he said, and I found this few lines that he wrote uh, in the introduction, and I, and I figured it pinpointed exactly where this man who I've been talking with was. He says, but what I find especially fascinating is the way many skeptics of religion today will not admit that they are skeptics for the same combination of reasons Instead, they claim to resist Christianity for logical reasons only. There is not enough proof for the reality of God, they say. Books and documentaries on Jesus have undermined his uniqueness or even existence. I would believe, I have heard my skeptical friends say, if only you gave me some proof. I don't doubt that evidence is important to many people, and so it should be. But I do doubt that this is the only factor in people's unbelief, or even that it is always the main factor. I have had too many conversations over the years with avowed atheists who, after some deeper discussion and growing friendship, admit that their reasons for resisting Christ are more complex than first acknowledged. An event in the past called into question the fairness or existence of the Almighty. A Christian they once knew turned out to be an ugly hypocrite and it spoiled their appreciation of anything coming out of the mouth of believers. Personal and social factors prove important for unbelief after all. And that was the case with the men that I, was, that I meet with and talk with. People still walk away unrepentant and unbelieving, just like the Pharisees in uh, verses 14 to 18. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying the Bible is enough. The gospel accounts are reliable. They are trustworthy. The problem is with us. The problem is with our hearts. Not a lack of evidence. We remember back from chapter 14, verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It is humbling to admit sin. And so many will not do it. Or they will think of excuses. We think again back to chapter 14, verses 18 to 20. For all the excuses that, that were given for turning down the, God's invitation to the, to the heavenly banquet. I'm too busy. I'm busy with busyness. I'm busy with business. I'm busy with life. I have a family. 
Other things are too important. None of these are a lack of evidence problems. They are all heart problems. They are matters of the will problems. Now we need to be aware of this when we are sharing Christ with others. We need to be aware of this in our own lives. The reality of heaven and hell, the source of our justification, these things should keep us on task and focused. And so may the Lord give us hearts and minds and eyes to see things with eternity in mind. May we understand and trust in what has been revealed in the Son through His Word. Let's pray together. Father, how many of us in this room are abundantly aware of people who have listed out the excuses? And we know that it's not for lack of evidence. It's from hardened hearts. And yet we know the reality and we... we hate the thought of the day that they would stand there and think, I wish someone would go back and talk to the people I know. For we recognize that the rich man never says, I'm not supposed to be here. But he recognizes that what he should have done was repent. And we feel the crushing weight of that in our own lives. And so, Father, we we gather together as your people to confess and repent to make sure that our walk is steady with you to remember the grace that was poured out for us for someone did die and rise again to tell us of good news and so father we ask for wisdom we ask for hearts and minds that see eternity in every soul that we walk past Father, that you would give us the burden that is laid on the rich man in hell on this side of life. And that you would give us words to speak. That you would give us patience and an endurance. That you would give us prayerfulness in praying for the lost people that we know around us. Oh, Father, that these things would weigh on us, but also that we would lay them at your feet knowing that these things will be done in your timing. And so we commit them to you. But we ask that you use us at the same time. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and respond and worship with us?